What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Facebook met with civil rights leaders to discuss racism on the world's biggest social network. Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, was in the room virtually and is deeply disappointed. Facebook needs to decide, do they want to host the Aryan Brotherhood on their platform? Because that's what they're doing now. They've organized the Stop Hate for Profit campaign to mobilize Facebook's advertisers to boycott the platform. But CEO Mark Zuckerberg thinks Facebook and its stock price can bounce back. They believe all the advertisers will be back. They believe this, this, this ad pause will end and things will revert back to normal. But this is the new normal. And Purdue University President Mitch Daniels on reopening for students in the fall. No one says this will be easy, but uh, the cost of not attempting it, uh, I think in the lives of, in our case, tens of thousands of young people uh, would, uh, would not be acceptable. It's Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, Facebook under fire. Still, well over 700 corporations, including big ones like Coca-Cola and Unilever, have pulled or paused their advertising spending with Facebook, prompted by the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, aimed at pushing the social media giant to change the way it moderates racist content. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg sat down for a virtual meeting with the civil rights group organizers of the initiative Tuesday afternoon. In preparation of that meeting, those leaders provided a collection of 10 actions for Facebook to take two weeks ago. Ahead of the meeting, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, an organizer of the campaign, told Squawk Box what he was hoping to hear from Zuckerberg and Sandberg on that Zoom conference call and why the call was necessary in the first place. It is absolutely not enough for me. It is not enough for the NAACP, Color of Change, Free Press, or any of these organizations, and it's not enough for their advertisers. Can you imagine the CEO of Starbucks said, well, we're making sure that our coffee doesn't poison people because it's the right thing. Let's be clear, hundreds of millions of dollars in lost advertising revenue are why they're doing this. When their stock price plummeted eight and a quarter percent last week and they shaved $56 billion of value off the stock, that's why they're doing this. After the meeting, Facebook released a statement about the conversation saying, quote, they want Facebook to be free of hate speech and so do we. We know that we will be judged by our actions, not by our words, and are grateful to these groups and many others for their continued engagement. But most attendees agreed that there aren't many actions to judge Facebook on, especially after years of this engagement with very little tangible change on the platform. NAACP President Derek Johnson, one of the organizers of the campaign and a participant in Tuesday's face-to-face -face Zoom call, said as much on CNBC after the meeting ended. 
there are no outcomes. There are no outcomes. There are no outcomes. I keep repeating the same thing. And, you know, just like any company or investor, they're looking for outcomes or return on investments. There are no return on the investment of the dialogues that we've had over two years. At some point, uh, we hope that Facebook will wake up to the reality is they have responsibility to keep communities safe. Another organizer and attendee, Jessica Gonzalez of Free Press, tweeted that Facebook's attempts to placate advertisers, users, and activists are hollow, without meaningful action. All in all, it wasn't the meeting anyone had hoped for. And this morning, Facebook released a civil rights audit report that the platform commissioned two years ago. A former ACLU director led the audit and concluded in her 89-page report that Facebook had made, quote, heartbreaking decisions that were significant setbacks for civil rights. Here's Joe Kernan. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this, Andrea, and, and, I, 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 and Becky, but I, I hope we don't disagree, Andrea. It's just that I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. And I saw something this morning it, it, about over in, in Europe, because they actually have dealt with this in a much more strident way. With They have an actual independent human rights monitoring body of the Council of Europe. Right. And there, there's 47 members, each, each member, all the EU member states and others, they each give one person who's an expert in the knowledge of combating intolerance, uh, dealing with racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and intolerance, and they all get together and, and they really do dictate what's okay and what's not okay. And I, I, just, right. I, I just wonder what, how does Facebook walk the line and, and what happened to the old uh, ACLU that, that used to just I mean I used to see things from the ACLU where I said that's too much you cannot possibly think that it's okay to say that and now it seems like it's all switched where it's just hard for me to understand who you put in charge of deciding what other people are allowed to well, see well that's the, the great conundrum with to, Facebook is that, that because yeah. you, you really do have one person Right. And, and do you I do, frankly, I look, actually, you and I, I do would think would rather see somebody else in charge of this. He, he would like to see regulation and somebody else deciding it, it would what's help. right and it what's wrong. It probably would help to get it out of that position. But what do we want? Do we want, do we want uh, companies to regulate themselves or do we really want a, a more heavy handed well, uh, approach from, obviously from regulating? There's a lot of different people who all want different things. <laughs> the royal we. I meant, uh, I just talked about the three right. of us. What do we want? Well, uh, so it's interesting, though. I, in, a, in, a, in a strange way, maybe the now you could argue that maybe the advertisers are being co-opted by organizations or this or that. But you could argue this, whatever the outcome of this ultimately is, could be a quote unquote market based right. solution. In now so you're far appealing as to me. Facebook is going to find the corporations are trying the line. The corporations are trying to make gonna money. But find the line based on the corporations. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that right now Facebook's in a particularly complicated position because if they if they ca I don't want to say it, if, if they if they if, if this group and the advertisers, quote unquote, win. Right. Yeah. Uh, then people will say there's Mark Zuckerberg again, uh, craven profiteer, only doing things completely unprincipled, but will right. always do will always go where the money is. If he goes the opposite direction and says, I have this principle about what he thinks about free speech, which other people may or may you know, disagree about, then people say that, you know, he's uh, allowing hate speech on his on his platform. I also think there's an issue of the philosophical view of this, which is and I think they've gotten about 90 percent of it, probably somewhere right. I think we're really talking about the 10 percent that 
that is up for grabs. And then there is the technology piece, which is you have to have artificial intelligence to catch this stuff early. And unlike, frankly, pornography, other things, it's actually it, it demonstrably is harder to do because humans. Uh, there are things, for example, uh, you know, um, a rap song that uses the N word, uh, right. they'll allow that on, on the platform. Uh, if it's used in a different way, they won't allow that. And, then, and the technology has to be able to figure out how it's being used. And right. so it's. Yeah, but it's you know very what, Andrew, complicated. they have solved much more complicated problems. It's, it's complicated, but they have solved much more complicated problems. Part of it is not wanting to be in a position of having to do this. And, and, and I do think... Well, that's what I'm saying. There's a the philosophical answer. view of, of how much... Of how, 100%. There's, that's part of what's happening here. But I yeah. do think the technology is not as simple as, as, in some cases, it's made out to be. Except... Yeah, it, look, it, we've solved much more complicated technological problems, though. Except that if... If you use only AI, you miss a lot of things. And then if you use only humans, then you got the subjectivity of every human and okay. what he feels. Right. We need an Android. Or, and you or can't like keep a up. Part, part human, right. part machine. We don't have those yet. Uh, they're, they're maybe on the on the horizon. But I, here's what, and then I was, I was actually talking to Max about this, to our, our producer. Look. Look at the Supreme Court, how, how difficult their job is. And, and every time we, we try to put a new person on the court, God, I mean, look what we go through to make sure we try to get this 5-4 or even 4-4 with a swing vote because these issues are so, they're so difficult. And the slightest issue goes through the court. Finally, this really specific issue ends up, and these guys labor over, over which is the right decision to make, 5-4, it comes out and people do I mean, how do we do that at Facebook about every single uh, issue? I, I mean, it's very Again, difficult. It's very difficult. Back to Facebook not wanting to be the one making this call. I mean, it, Mark Zuckerberg would love to see regulation. Somebody else who is responsible for making those decisions, and then the companies just have but to. What do we want? We don't want this this unelected group of forty-seven euro, uh, you know, people to to tell us. Oh my God, you, you want, can't see that, do you? Do you? I, I, I'd us? rather see certain things that I might find that I don't like and not see anything and just see this perfect world that, you know, I don't know. It's just, I just think it's a lot to but, talk but about. But you were talking about the policing. It, you know, you're not talking about whether or not it's going to be policed. You're just talking about who's going to police it. Is it every company's responsibility to do that? I, you know, I, I, right. I can't imagine any of these companies would well, want to be in there, that position. Over there, they got laws and people watching. And if you do it, you're in big yeah. trouble. So I don't know if that's what we're looking at. Maybe maybe we do need that. Just I don't know. We're going to continue this conversation now. Our next guest was on that call yesterday uh, with uh, Zuckerberg and another top uh, Facebook executives. Joining us is Jonathan Greenblatt. He is the CEO and national director of the Anti-Defamation League uh, and helped uh, start all of this uh, off uh, from the get go. Uh, Jonathan, it's nice to see you. Uh, Take us just just take us inside the call. Put us in the room. And give us just your, your as much color and impression as you can about uh, the reaction that you heard uh, from Facebook. Sure. Well, good morning, Andrew. Thank you for having me back this morning. So it was a little bit of what I would call a surreal experience. So it was a Zoom call, the likes of which all of us find ourselves doing sort of nonstop in our COVID environment. But I want you to imagine sort of a Brady Bunch screen. And there were four people on our side, myself, Derek Johnson, CEO of NAACP, Rashad Robinson, CEO of Color Chains, and Jessica Gonzalez, the CEO of Free Press. And there were a number of Facebook leadership. You had Mark, 
You had Cheryl, you had Chris Cox, you had Nick Clegg, Neil Potts, and a number of other executives. And the meeting started out in a bit of a strange place where we did a quick round of introductions. Mark made some perfunctory remarks and they said, okay, we want to hear from you. And myself and Rashad, we looked at each other and we said, I'm sorry, you asked for this meeting. We want to hear from you. You know the demands. You know what we're asking for. And again, it's not just the four of us. It's almost a thousand companies from around the world are asking for this. And the headline is quite simple. It's will you make a public commitment with real deliverables to fight hate? And in fact, there was this sort of dance, like you go, no you go. And ultimately we just said, hey, look guys, what we want is very clear. What your advertisers want is very clear. There's no confusion about it. Let's walk through the, the requests, tell us what you're willing to do and when you're willing to do it. And you know, I was a former product, I'm a former product manager. I used to manage software development. And when you have a product roadmap, you sit down with your team and you say, okay, what are the milestones and what's the time frame? And we got no milestones, we got no time frame. So the start of the meeting was, we were a little bit confused by the end of it, we were deeply disappointed. So what, what was though the tone of the reaction you got from Mark Zuckerberg, from Sheryl Sandberg on these issues as you pressed on that phone call? Well, we pushed. We did push. And, you know, Cheryl and Mark and the other executives have a tone of, well, we're here to listen. And this is a journey. And we basically said, look, there is no journey in the fight against hate. It's pretty clear. Either you exhibit the kind of standards and practices that all other media companies do. And you say there's no room for hate in this business or you kind of dance around the issues and make give us platitudes. I mean, by the end of the call, there was one moment where Mark said, you know, I'm really pleased. It's helpful for us to hear the, about the nuances of these issues. And I said, look, Mark, there is no nuance to white nationalism. It's wrong and it doesn't belong, not on Facebook or any other kind of mainstream media platform. So I think there was a sense of exasperation that they seemed, again, unable to respond to some pretty basic stuff. When you say that to Mark, what does he say back? Well, there's a little bit of, you know, there, there aren't always the direct answers that we would hope for, that we were expecting, that this call was sort of positioned to be. Again, I, it's confusing to me why they're listening now rather than responding to what we've already asked for. Not just us, again, nearly a thousand companies. And what it says to me, Andrew, is they are not serious about this. Mark's comments internally last week that were reported in the information where he said all the advertisers will be back. I mean, we brought that up to him and he said, oh, well, that was just a bit of it. I released the whole comments. But the bottom line is they believe all the advertisers will be back. They believe this, this, this ad pause will end and things will revert back to normal. But this is the new normal. The new normal is, despite the fact that Facebook and its properties have nearly 3 billion users, the most iconic brands in the world are saying they can't afford for their reputations to be dragged through the mud because, as my analysts saw yesterday morning, ads for things like Sony or Sirius or Geico showing up on Facebook alongside horrible, hateful, anti-Semitic, racist content. Like, this just isn't feasible in any other media environment, and it shouldn't be feasible on Facebook. So that's the point we made. 
And, and uh, just to address, you know, they said this is a journey. We're getting better. Four years ago, we were told by Mark, all of our hate content was self-reported. Today, our AI, it catches 89% of the hate content. Well, I pointed out, forget the fact that I don't, re that's a numerator. I don't really know what your denominator is. I don't understand the total amount of hate content on your website. So it's hard for me to make sense of that number. But Ford Motor Company has joined the ad, has joined Stop Hate for Profit. They don't get to say, well, 89% of our seatbelts work, you know, or as Kind Snacks, another company that's joined, they don't get to say, well, 89% of our bars on shelf don't have glass in them. 89% isn't good enough for the most sophisticated advertising hey, platform in the world. Hey, Jonathan. Period. Uh, Jonathan, we had a long conversation earlier about this, and it, and it, we went on about it, and, and, and it's the same kind of question I had for you yesterday. No one is, is going to argue with you about white supremacists or white nationalists, but they're over in Europe now, the Council of Europe, 47 member states, you know, it's got all the EU member states. I know you know about this. So they've got 47 unelected people from each country that are experts in combating what they call with intolerance and xenophobia and, and these nebulous terms that come in as people, as subjective people. And they actually are, are able to, to monitor and look around the thought police as to, what, as to what people don't like to make it safe for everyone. Now, Jonathan, I know you've seen, uh, like on college campuses, some of the articles about what constitutes a safe mm -hmm. space. And, and I've rolled my eyes on some of it. It's like, you got to be kidding. That, that, sure. that we're you know what I'm saying? This is the, we're back to the slippery slope. For example, do you think someone could claim that George Washington represents hate speech at this point? I guarantee I can find someone that would say a picture of George Washington on Facebook it, 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 to them represents hate. So who's in charge and how do we make sure that we're not just coddling people with it, that you get out the really bad actors, KKK, white nationalism, but then what if you've got the most woke group of, of people in their late 20s deciding, I don't like this hate, this is hate, this is hate, this is hate. Can't you see that that's why Zuckerberg and the others are treading so lightly on this? Well, Joe, look, so a couple things. So number one, I hear you, and I'm someone who doesn't believe in safe spaces. I believe in brave spaces. We've got to be able to hear multiple points of view. The ADL is a non-political, I mean, we're a non-profit. Like, we're not a partisan organization, and we don't take sides in sort of these political battles. But I will tell you this. <clears throat> when you say the KKK should be easy, when you say that this stuff should be simple for Facebook, it's the other stuff. We're just talking right now about the KKK. We're talking about Facebook groups that have hundreds of thousands of members who espouse things like that the Jews are controlling the government and that they should be killed. Like literally live on Facebook today, you could go find those groups. But that, let me draw maybe an example, Joe, that's a little closer to home. Okay, that's less abstracted by Mike. They've got right? rid, rid of hundreds and hundreds of, of those sites. They claim to have gotten rid of all the white. Don't they at least say that they've done that? But you're telling me you can still find well, them everywhere. They, we can offline, you and I, or, or your producers and I, I can, you can, we can pull those okay. up literally. That's a problem. But unless they would allow an independent audit of their hate content, we wouldn't know. But let me just draw, if I might, Joe, a different example. And I'm going to think about CNBC. I mean, your producers decide what guests to book or not. And there's a reason why you don't have the Aryan Brotherhood picking stocks on CNBC shows. 
So it's not to say that people shouldn't be able to express their views, but if Facebook needs to decide, do they want to host the Aryan Brotherhood on their platform? Because that's what they're doing now. Do they want to host militias that are dedicated to overthrowing the U.S. government? Because that's what they're doing now. And I think they don't belong on CNBC and they don't belong on Facebook. But, Jonathan, I, I can tell you that we, we, we might have someone that, that they don't want us to book any fossil fuel CEOs or, or any, any investors that recommend fossil fuels. Is that what we get to? Or I, I mean, there are places where, you know, where we're so partisan in this country right now, I can tell you. There are some people on, on one side that will definitely think some of these things go far, and you're going to have people on the other side that think, oh, my God, this doesn't go nearly far enough. And I just don't see how we arbitrate that, you know, when we're, you know, when we both are, when everybody's so subjective, everybody's got their own opinion about things. Yeah, again, like, I, I really, I sympathize with this position, Joe, because, again, I find myself pulled from the left and the right every day running right. ADL. But don't let this... This desire to fight political correctness be a smokescreen because there's no, nothing partisan in pushing back on prejudice. I, do you remember the right. ACLU? And so that's what we're talking Jonathan, about. Jonathan, the ACLU, there used to be, like when I was younger, I'd see some of the stances they would take and I'd go, that's outrageous. They're defending people that are the worst mm. human beings. on. The remember when they would do it and they'd say, well, this is everybody's got a, you know, whether it's a terrorist or I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what the examples were. Has it totally sure. switched now where now they're, the, the ACLU is going to become more policing uh, free speech? Yeah, I mean, look, the ACLU isn't involved in this particular no, kind I of know, conversation you, you we're having I mean, with Facebook. The left. But Even freedom of speech, I do, I do. Our organization has been, you know, filing amicus briefs at the Supreme Court of First Amendment issues before I was born. But freedom of speech isn't the freedom to slander people right. because of how they pray or where they're from. Freedom of expression isn't the freedom to incite violence against people because of, you know, who they love or how they look. Right. And so that's what we're talking hey, about here, Joe. Hey, Jonathan. And I think there are, again, I, there's some thick black lines about what's inbounds and out of bounds. And okay. that's what we're talking about here. All right. Fair enough. Jonathan, just, just two, two final thoughts. Uh, one is... Do you give them any credit for the fact that they did this audit and and are engaging in some way? They may not be engaging the way you want, but to the degree that they've actually endeavored to to pursue this, um, I don't know if you're, you're you're suggesting this whole thing is a whitewash. But is do you have a thought on that? Because I mean, okay. they they did they sure, did I pursue do. this this conversation with you and they end this thing two years ago. Yeah. So, look, I think Laura Kelly, the woman who led the uh, audit, who, by the way, is a former ACLU executive, is a very distinguished person. I think the audit seems very thorough because Laura drove it. But the question at this point, in my opinion, Andrew, is, you know, actions speak louder than words. Our meeting yesterday was a meeting about right. meeting. What we need now, again, are commitments and timetables. And it's pretty simple. Um, and here's the real thing, Andrew, to think about. And I would talk to some of your some of the advertisers about this. Starbucks, Levi's, Ford, right. Diageo, right. they don't want their brand subsidizing hate anymore. There are other platforms so, that they can use, and you'll start to see that happen right. this month. Jonathan, and then fi final question, then, it's because the thing that's baffling me, if in, if in fact you're right, you look at this stock, and I'm not saying the stock market's always right, but you look at the, the Facebook stock, we're showing it over the past week, but really you should probably look at it over the past month, and you'd say to yourself, even given this, given this boycott, that the investment community believes these advertisers are ultimately going to be back like the same way that Mark Zuckerberg does. Well, look, as you just said, you know, you and I both know the, stock, the markets are an imperfect predictor of the future. 
But what we saw is the stock dropped eight and a quarter percent about a week and a half ago when we really started to get the pause off the ground. It will still probably move around, but the whole market is moving up. So, Andrew, I don't know that Facebook is really that the Facebook share price today is an indication of the success of our meeting tomorrow or the success of our movement in the future. Okay, Jonathan, uh, it's great to have you on the program and to uh, get your perspective on all of it. Uh, We appreciate uh, talking to you yesterday and today and uh, look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Next on Squawk Pod, Purdue University President Mitch Daniels on going back to school. Overwhelmingly, uh, our uh, our boilermakers uh, want to be here, and it's our job to find ways to allow them to pursue their education and get their uh, lives launched uh, on schedule. We'll be right back. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Is there a back to school season after a pandemic? President Trump said yesterday that his administration will put pressure on governors across the U.S. to open schools in the fall. We hope that most schools are going to be open. We don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. I think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And uh, it's very important. It's very important for our country. It's very important for the well-being of the student and the parents. So we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on open your schools in the fall. So many questions remain about how schools can open safely for both students and the educators, administrators, and support staff in those buildings across the country. The nation's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, said yesterday he thinks state governors should mandate the use of face masks, particularly because enclosed indoor spaces are the perfect setup for the spread of infection. And he cautioned against complacency in the face of COVID-19 based on one particular metric. It's a false narrative to take comfort in in a lower rate of death. There's so many other things that are very dangerous and bad about this virus. Don't get yourself into false complacency. As summer rolls on, academic institutions are trying to forge a path forward. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, told us that testing for the coronavirus in schools could be as important as grades. I think testing could be used more widely to get the schools open and maintain the schools and make sure you don't have outbreaks in the school setting. I think it's hard for the schools to implement that. The states don't have a lot of excess resources uh, to do the testing around the schools. And that's why you're probably not going to see a lot of schools doing that. Colleges are starting to do testing, but they're using their own resources for it. In many cases, they have research labs that they can repurpose for research use only to do testing of students. And if they get a, a positive, then they can verify it with an approved test. Colleges and universities where cramming as many students as possible into dorm rooms and lecture halls is something of a rite of passage, are facing possible reinvention due to the public health crisis. Today on Squawk Box, we heard from Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University and a former governor of Indiana. Here's Becky Quick. 
I know you have been early with this and have been working on a plan for a very long time. You're going to be bringing 45,000 students back to West Lafayette starting next month. And um, it's going to look a little different. You have put a lot of things that you've been preparing for, including some of the testing that uh, Dr. Gottlieb was just telling us about. Everything's going to look different, Becky. Uh, I, I, I told our returning students that they'll feel like uh, freshmen because of all the all the changes, all aim safety uh, of students, but in particular of those more vulnerable, or potentially so, faculty, staff, and so forth. So, physical changes, policy changes, and just to. Uh, uh, witness the topicality of your last report. We'll be announcing today that, that uh, every student will be tested, will have to submit a negative test prior to uh, moving into uh, a residence hall or attending the first class. Um, you're right, we've been working on this. We started early because we're very daunted by the implementation challenges. And um, uh, we've now gotten to the point that I hoped we would get to where we'll be able to, to add this to all our other plans. Uh, President Daniels, in, in terms of what it's going to look like on the college campuses, I, I know you said that it's going to, it will affect uh, the dining halls, it's going to affect the classrooms, it's going to affect the residents. But I know you've also had a, a huge number of people who have confirmed that they are coming back. I think I read that you had said that their tuition deposits for incoming uh, freshmen actually shattered last year's records by double digits. So where do you put all these people? How do you handle dorm room situations uh, when, when you have such a full capacity? It'll be tight, but we've had to deal with that before. And, and um, about half of our students, uh, and this is a problem as much as a solution, live off campus. But uh, uh, that, that's just one of the uh, challenges that we'll face. That's one that we're not unfamiliar with. I will say, you know, that uh, first of all, it's very clear in our case, and I think uh, everything I see nationally says that this is a general rule, students want to be on campus very much. They know, and we agree, that there are elements of the on-campus experience that uh, well, uh, we no one has figured out how to fully replicate online yet. So we're offering an, an online choice to students who can't get here, uh, like many of our international students, uh, or who uh, uh, don't want to uh, come yet to campus, but uh, overwhelmingly, uh, our, uh, our Boilermakers uh, want to be here, and it's our job to find ways to allow them to pursue their education and get their uh, lives launched uh, on schedule. I know you can control what happens on campus. Part of that is that you've said there won't be things like concerts, um, there won't be fraternity parties that are taking place on campus, but as you mentioned, half your students live off campus. Will the bars in West Lafayette be open? Um, and how do you kind of work with that to try and deal with that situation, knowing that, that bars have been a place where a lot of these most recent outbreaks have, have kind of picked up and, and, and really taken off? It's an extremely uh, perceptive and important question. It goes way beyond bars. You know, uh, ironically, uh, here and at other schools I'm talking to, uh, we understand that we're in a symbiotic relationship with our communities in so many cases. Uh, and we are one, uh, the, the, the school is the, is the heart of the local economy and is the largest employer and so forth. And uh, uh, we now see that, uh, first of all, we need our community to take all the steps it can take also. Uh, so we don't want to uh, create a problem for our neighbors in the community and, uh, and uh, maybe an, an even bigger problem. We don't want a casual outlook there to uh, uh, allow the virus to come on campus when it wouldn't otherwise get here. So we're working very closely with them, with the local health officials, and uh, you know, uh, literally in some ways, one of the safest places in our entire county will be in a Purdue classroom, but we can't control 
uh, nearly so well what happens in more congregate spaces, and we certainly can't control directly what happens when someone crosses the street and uh, enters uh, our, our neighboring city. Hey, Mitch, I have two quick questions. One is your, your plan relies uh, in large part on uh, testing and tracing. And I wanted to just get your thoughts. I don't know if you've been following what's happening with Major League Baseball. Uh, they have a plan. Uh, obviously, they're a professional league with a lot of money at stake. And over the past couple of days, their plan, their testing plan has not been working the way they anticipated, in part because they're not able to get the results quick enough. And in fact, therefore, you have the potential risk that people are getting infected, if you will, between when a test is taken and afterwards. How are you planning to deal with that? Now, we're watching very uh, carefully, and we understand there is no perfect here. Um, where in life do you find it? Uh, but uh, we do believe we have, we have now found a system and found partners that will allow us to um, ensure, uh, we hope with uh, few, if any, um, mistakes that students arrive on campus in, uh, negative. And then uh, so much of what we'll be doing here has to do with distance, the de-densification of things. More than half of our uh, adult workforce, faculty and staff, will not be on campus on any given day, just as, as one right. uh, example. What's, what's the cost of, of the program that you're going to be running in terms of testing, and how frequently will you be testing? We talked to the, the president of Cornell who put a three to five million dollar price tag on it. They're going to be doing it every seven days. Harvard's going to be testing every three days. It'll be in the millions and the, the total cost of all the steps we're taking, uh, the miles of plexiglass, the uh, uh, reconfiguration of, uh, of buildings and so forth in the tens of millions. Uh, we will, uh, uh, we are going to ask of every student and every person on campus, faithful, um, um, uh, allegiance to a set of behaviors, a so-called uh, Protect Purdue pledge. It starts with uh, taking one's own temperature, I just did in the morning, reporting any symptoms. We will test anyone with any sort of symptom immediately. Uh, we may do some surveillance testing on top of that, but um, uh, we've made space, uh, we've made arrangements for the quarantining of those who uh, do test positive. Um, no one says this will be easy. But uh, the cost of not attempting it, uh, I think, in the lives of, in our case, tens of thousands of young people, uh, would, uh, would not be acceptable. Hey, Mitch, the new plans for international students, how they'd have to leave the country, wouldn't be able to have visas if a school was not doing any um, in-classroom um, learning with them. I know you've been really involved just in terms of international students and, and trying to lower the percentage of international students that come to Purdue, which I think is a good idea, considering that Purdue is a state university and takes money from the state, to, to, to make sure that you have more spots available for Indiana students. We have been moderating the, the percentage substantially over recent years and, and uh, for various reasons. Um, but it's still a large number and a population, uh, a student population as big as ours. No, I thought the decision was not a good one. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what uh, motivated it. Uh, in our case, I hope this is correct, we don't see a big impact. First of all, the vast majority of our uh, uh, students, as I say, are, are coming to campus and want to be on campus. Uh, probably 90% or more are taking that option. In the case of international students, unfortunately, it appears that most of them are out of the country and their, their problem is travel restrictions, not this, this new decision. So we're looking to see how many, uh, uh, it, the, the subset of the subset for us would be 
a small percentage that are in the country already and opted uh, in the small percentage uh, for an online option. I hope that it doesn't present a big challenge to our students. I, I do worry about those elsewhere. We'll be watching this closely. I know you've got people coming back starting in August to go through November 24th, and we'd love to get updates from you from how that's going along the way. Glad to do that. Okay. Thank you much. We'll be right back. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. That's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about us, too. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.